Welcome to episode 79 of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Coming Woo-hoo. to you practically, almost, kind of, sort of live from high above the mellow mushroom. It's so high up here. <laughs> We're in the control room of our master, fearless, peerless engineer, Mondo Grimes. Taking a break from kicking out the hits. Uh, to record the podcast and do so again in spectacular fashion. (laughs) Joining us live, he's not even Skyped in from the the left coast, a man who has sailed in to Tennessee. I don't know how he did that. The Admiral. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Aaron Porter is with us. Ahoy! Ahoy! Skipper. Yes. And here again in the studio, one of our all-time favorite guests... We get a we get a lot of traffic every time he shows up, which is the reason we bring him back, is that he gets oh, such a good strong response. But you think I'm talking about you, Thaddeus? <laughs> oh, so, yeah, I am <laughs> talking about Scott. Uh, okay, Thaddeus Hefner, oh. and a good friend <laughs> of Thad's and mine, Scott Murphy's here too. Yeah. Uh, so I yeah so here to my mm-hmm. right, a couple of single guys, a couple of Christian single guys, Dad. And, now we Scott, what? we have already done the interview portion of this. I, I don't know if people know that there's a magic technology. Are you gonna uh, really? You're letting people look behind the curtain. No, I I think I think today I am. All right, yeah, I yeah, want to no, invite you all. That. No, no, enough about that. So I'm 39. I'm single. <laughs> I floss. I use deodorant. So any ladies out there, just you know, just you know, contact Nate Larkin. <laughs> okay, Aaron, you were saying. Wow. All right, then. Uh, I just want to invite all the listeners to come on backstage today and take a look. We have a guest, Tim Timmerman, who's already been on. Now, we're going to chop that and put it after what we're (laughs) saying now, like magic. But what you're going to find out is we ended up talking about friendship, and especially for guys in the church or anyone, men, women, Mm -hmm. folks in the church who are single need friendships, but they get to that point where a lot of people around them are getting married. What is the... A, what are those... What are the feelings attached to being single in the church? What does that feel like? Mm. And then what's the church's responsibility to the members of their own body who are starved? Yeah. You know, let's talk to somebody who's closer to the experience. I have now been married for 34 years. And it, it, it's been so long since I was single that I've kind of forgotten. Nate was married at two, by the way. What it was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's what's the experience, positive and negative, about being a single guy in the modern American evangelical church? Thaddeus, Scott, either one of you, go ahead, rock Why don't and roll. You start, Scott. Well, for me, it's. It's a little difficult because if you look at the culture of the church, it, it's totally built around the family unit. Mm. Yeah. We even take off a lot of churches this summer from our programs um, and, and kind of take it off because the kids are out of school. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, my life doesn't stop in the summers. My hurts, my needs, they don't stop in the summers. And right. And so that that's one thing that's frustrating. But even when you walk in, there's really not a place. If you look through... The directory, if you will, of all the classes yeah. for for Sunday school, if you will, uh, married couples between twenty and thirty, mm-hmm. married couples with uh, teenagers, married couples, and you really just don't find a place, you know, unless yeah. you're fresh out of college. It kind of communicates to you there is no place for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And if there is no place for me, then where is my place? Yeah. And yeah. so every week I come back to church, I get more and more frustrated, more and more hurt. 
because I don't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I sense I sense some real pain in that mm-hmm. statement. Unfortunately, you have found in the last year or so mm-hmm. somewhat of a place. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Thaddeus, mm-hmm. would, would, do you uh, have you felt those feelings in the past? Is some of that current? What do you think? What's what, what what's the what's the church doing right and wrong for single people, specifically single men? Um, <clears throat> I think what I'm seeing more and more of today with single men and what the church is doing right are um, organizations or uh, intentional groups getting together like Samson Society, yeah. like New Adam, uh, that there's a, there's a turning or a coming back to uh, where all of the men in the church, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and how, do we, how do we breathe life back into men. Um, so that he becomes a, a living soul again. Yeah. And, and I'm seeing a lot more, I think, anyway, w- with the circles I run in, I'm seeing more of, and more of that, yeah. which, thank God. Um, what I, I'd say the opposite to that is what's wrong is I'm not seeing enough of it yet. You know, I'm thankful for what I'm seeing, but, yeah. oh, let's do more of it. And, and let's not be shocked or surprised or I need to clean it up before we do it. Can we just be men? Can we just say, can we have a safe place to say what we need to say? Yeah. Do what we need to do and and, and be messy about it if, if necessary and, and not have to kind of clean it up before I say it. Yeah. And not, not be, af- meaning not be afraid that I'm going to be judged or um, that someone's going to have some kind of high advice to give me. You know, sometimes I just, as a man now for myself, sometimes I just need to be heard. Yes. Thank you for all the advice and wisdom you have. And, and if I need it, I would definitely will ask for it. And I do need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can I just be, have a safe place to be seen, to be heard, to be affirmed, to know that uh, I'm, everything's going to be okay? And, and so I'm seeing more and more of that. I, I would love to see even more. And, and, and I think you know, the tide has turned and we're going to see more of that, but that's what I would have to say toward that. Yeah. I, I think it's funny, before we started recording, we were talking about Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, that those can be really lonely times mm. for single folks in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was talking with a, a number of people in our, our church that had guests this year, and we've had a single guy come enough years to Christmas that he has his own stocking now. Mm. And the kids get frustrated because they can't open their presents until he gets there in the morning. And you know, the kids get at like 4 in the morning and <laughs> can't ask him to get there at 4 in the morning. Uh, but then there was a, a new young woman who was single that came this year. And I was talking to some other folks, and I never would have conceived. I would have thought it was weird to have people over on Christmas. That must feel weird. It actually doesn't mm-hmm. because everyone ends up being on their best behavior because there's somebody not it actually makes mm-hmm. Thanksgiving there's less arguments there's yeah. just it's smoother everybody huh. serves each other better and everybody that participated in opening their hearts and lives to the single folks in the church to say come be a part of our family mm-hmm. and to kind of make that a routine that it's not like just mm-hmm. this year but hey yeah. this is just going to kind of be your place mm-hmm. just get comfortable this is where you're going to be on mm-hmm. Thanksgivings if you're in town uh, they have actually found that it has made their holidays where there's a lot of family tension yeah. the smoothest holidays they've ever had mm-hmm. which yeah. I thought was an unexpected and interesting blessing to the whole thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. so how would how do you think most people would feel if people in the church a realized there was a need and b actually 
entered into that? What, how important would that be are you, for you guys to... What, what do you think? For me, I think I would like to see it before Christmas because that would almost make me feel like yeah. I'm a project. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I really don't want to be a project, and I mm-hmm. really don't want your pity. Yeah. Um, so if you just did it at Christmas, that would probably... I probably wouldn't like that. Uh-huh. I love the idea. Uh-huh. Um, You're you know, talking about greater community. Yeah. yeah. I mean, community. invite me over in, in May right. yeah. for dinner. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. right. Not just Christmas. Right. And invite me to come sit with you at church, huh? Yeah. That, yes. You know, for me, that's, that's a big deal um, because I don't want to be isolated and just, you know, evaporate into nothingness at church. So... I started being specific to sit down on like the first or the third row and kind of where people usually sit. And that was interesting because as I would go in early and I would sit like two rows in or two seats in, um, nobody else would come sit there Mm -hmm. that normally sat there the week before. Mm -hmm. So I changed seats the next week and sit on the other side. And those folks got a little bit uncomfortable because somebody's in their space and they didn't sit there. Mm -hmm. So again an empty pew except for me yeah. it was almost comical after a while to, to see these people doing that um, as I got their seats so instead of shouting leper leper you felt like you had to shout single single right, and there right. would be yeah, like a, yeah. a barrier around you yeah. it's just semantics <sighs> can I add to that the flip side I want to say for me years ago probably about a 10, 12, 13 years ago uh, the church I was attending at the time um I would get to the Sunday school class about 10, 15 minutes early, and I would bring a book. I was, I'm still, I still am probably awkward, but I was so awkward, socially awkward. I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know how to connect all the time. And I would hide behind the book, mm-hmm. and I would read. And I had a new book every week. And look at me, aren't I an intellect, an intellectual? And um, but it, it was my wall. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I want to say to that too is to those to those men and women that are single that feel lonely, that um, I, I think what you were just saying, Scott, was that you strategically were placing yourself. You, you moved a little bit, right, to try mm-hmm. and get in people's yeah, way. Yeah. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I was hiding. So I want to also say that there, there's a responsibility on my part as the single person to, to be intentional about reaching out as well and to say, hey, I have needs. Uh, you know, uh, men ask for what they want. They don't always get it, but the power isn't in the getting; it's in the asking. You know, and I wasn't asking. So, wow, you know, that's huge because our friend that I look forward to coming over on Christmas, we have had to say to each other, he can he can come over any time for dinner, mm-hmm. but I think he really he needed to be asked. He he didn't want to have to ask. Mm-hmm. But we're running around chasing our tails with four kids. Mm-hmm. He's by himself, so he has mm-hmm. a lot more time to feel bad about not being asked. Mm-hmm. And so we we had to talk about it just straight up. And and we had to say, you know what? Just say, I I'd like to come over. And mm-hmm. be like, oh, come over. Mm-hmm. And then from time to time, reminding him, saying, hey, remember, you can come over this week or you know whatever. But it's that like like you're saying taking that responsibility is huge because I think it is hard when you're married and you have kids mm-hmm. and there's someone that's feeling left out mm-hmm. you don't want them to feel left out but it's also pretty hard to like chase those emotional needs around when you're trying to chase all these emotional needs around yeah 
instead it's of just like opening doors and people to yeah. think about it to keep mm-hmm. it all yeah i hear yeah. it a lot in my practice i hear guys say i just want to be pursued i'm always the one making the phone calls and and i'm like well keep doing that and these guys are married it, it's they're not bad guys they're just they're busy and have you talked to them about it you know yeah. what, what yeah. you're saying you yeah. two talked to each other about it and you worked it out it's not that you're a terrible person. It's just, man, you've got a wife, you've got a kids, you've got a ministry, you have work, you have bil- life. You know. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. I only think of it once a month, that didn't mean that it was only once a month that it could have happened. Right. Could have happened five times. That's six right. Times in That's the right. Month. Yeah. All right. Well, this com- this conversation is going to go in new and wonderful directions when we come back on the Pirate Monk podcast. Yo ho. on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Finally, we're here with our guest, and I've been anticipating this guest for a very long time. Our good friend Thaddeus has been talking about him now for hmm, months. Almost a year. Yeah, yeah, almost a year. Brought this crazy book around that everybody's reading. Um, a Bigger World Yet. Faith, Brotherhood, and Same-Sex Needs. Yes. By Tim Timmerman. By Tim Timmerman. Welcome, Tim. Hey, thank you for having me, Nate. I, I hope I'll live up to your expectations, whatever those may be. <laughs> well, look, yeah, I don't want to tell you this, really, but Thaddeus has been keeping the expectations really low. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> good. Low bar. <laughs> Fine with me. Well, um, so you're a brave man. You stepped in as a believer, as a Christian, stepped into this whole uh, arena of same-sex needs, which tends to get, in my experience, either completely ignored or treated in some kind of a polemical fashion. Um, what, what led you, can you just, uh, what led you to write the book? Can you back up a little bit on your experience? How in the world did Tim Timmerman come about writing this book on this topic? Sure. Um, you know, Nate, it's 
it came through a multiple of streams, I want to say. One is being a Christian and someone who struggled with um, homosexuality, struggled with same-sex attraction, struggling with sexualizing my own gender, whatever term we want to put on it. But mm-hmm. um, And yet having a very devout and profound relationship with Jesus Christ and going to a Christian uh, undergraduate school and the like and uh, being a Christian since age five. And yeah. Really wondering how do um, how do I sort this out? Um, and it, part of it came about through my own struggle and journey and story. Another part of it came about, as I think the book attests to, just reading, be it reading books on touch, mm-hmm. books on um, uh, things like historic friendships throughout history, mm-hmm. um, and then the like. And then another big piece of it really was my involvement with groups like People Can Change, Mankind Project, mm-hmm. other um, uh, groups that work with uh, men and men's groups in a very intentional setting where they're working through kind of core needs and core issues and core wounds. Um, and starting to know a lot more men that have walked uh, with having high same-sex needs and struggling with, do I sexualize them, do I not? Um, and... Uh, hearing their stories of what was helpful and what was uh, good and what was wounding from the church, what was helpful with the church. And over time, I found myself just kind of amalgamating all this information. It largely, like even the, the stories that are in the book about friendship were just stuff I'd saved because I'd run onto some story and some history book and going, wow, this is an incredible story about William Wirt and Dabney Carr. I got to just sit that aside. And then mm. later um, with the book, Realizing, you know what, um, the church doesn't know what to do uh, with this issue. And I work at a Christian university. I work at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. And my buddies in my men's group basically said, you need to speak in chapel. The university doesn't know what to do around Mm -hmm. this topic. And I did, and it was one of the hardest things I'd ever done. And my my place of employment, um, being honest about... You know, this is my story, and I know that stuff you can relate to very much so, Nate, in mm-hmm. what I know of your story. And um, But it changed everything. There was this real dying to self, and then <laughs> then I had uh, you know, a sociology prof talk to me and say, when is your book coming out? And I was mm-hmm. like, uh, Lisa McMinn, another really wonderful author. And I was like, Lisa, you know, you got to be kidding. I'm not going to do that. And then just over time, just realizing um, I've got to... Uh, I've got to say something because so many people are dying on the vine here in yeah. terms of they're in the church and yet feel like they have no place to go. So, um, and largely, you know, I wrote the book I needed to read, uh, I needed uh, to kind of hold on to, of here's stories of men, kind of nitty-gritty stories of what this has looked like, and, and stories of hope and stories that that there, I think, is a bigger picture, hence the title, A Bigger World Yet, that I think a lot in our Christian culture don't see, or a lot in our culture, period, don't see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, isn't it true, isn't it crazy, that we we tend to, uh, in the church, and I think in the culture at large, uh, segregate uh, men with acknowledged same-sex attraction men with unacknowledged or unwanted same-sex attraction. Let's put those in a separate category from the other guys in the church. Yeah. Uh, As though uh, we're not all men together. As though we don't all have... 
we weren't all born with the same needs, although experience right. has taken us in other directions. And, right. and, and as though Christ hasn't called us to walk together. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. at, at their core, I think only another man knows what it's like to be another man. Yeah. I mean, you can have a wonderful relationship with your wife, but she's not going to know what it's like to be a man. Mm-hmm. Only another man can know that and walk with you in that. And I think there's some detrimental things that have happened historically. Um, I mentioned uh, an, an author by the name of Anthony Rotundo who talks about historically um, in you know 18 in the 19th century back there was no term for homosexuality so there wasn't a segregating of people mm-hmm. of you know this there's this group and then the straight guys there right. was no such thing instead you know homosexuality there wasn't a term they'd use the term sodomy which mm-hmm. is familiar to most which I don't know how graphic I can be on this podcast which referred to anything that was aberrant to to the traditional sexual act right. of the penis and vagina type thing. Um, so oral, anal, it, right. but it didn't. It wasn't gender specific. So anybody could anybody could say, yeah, that person committed an act of sodomy, but it didn't matter what gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was more of a blanket term of aberrant behavior, and that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and that. Um, it's, there was more of this equality. It was only until we get into the early 1900s uh, with our Oscar Wilde trial and stuff mm-hmm. at the end of the 1800s that you start getting into this sudden, like, oh, there's a separate identity. And also, I would, I would lay the blame largely on Freud, um, as, as one sociologist I read did and others, that this total sexualization of culture and even the revolution in the 60s of, you know, hey, you can have sex with anybody. Unfortunately, that threw out kind of all kinds of things because suddenly all kinds of relationships were suspect for sexual activity mm-hmm. where historically there, um, it was out of the question. There's a um, oh, there's an editorial writer, British, that I really like who um, uh, named W.T. Stead that talks about during the Oscar Wilde trial, he mentions... He says, basically, this is forced to our attention, um, the existence of a vice that none of us really knew about, or and we happily knew nothing about. And then he that? goes on to talk about, with that, with the awareness that such acts, sexual acts exist, etc., what is that going to do to friendship? And he says, I just think this is going to be detrimental to friendship and um, mm-hmm. and the culture of friendship, because suddenly there's going to be fear. And he talks about, you know, right now, right. men sleep in the same bed, men travel together all the time. There's no sort of assumption that there's something right. sexual. But And he's writing this like in 1895, somewhere in there. But he's like, oh, no, what is this going to do to friendship and what happens with that? And yeah. I think it, it did deal a detrimental blow there that, that has now divided us into different camps that I think are largely fabricated and not necessarily accurate for the heart's needs and kind of how we function as men. I mean, yeah. we need one another, period. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I love so much, Tim, about the title. Uh, just even starting with the title of the book, A Bigger World Yet, Faith, Brotherhood, and Same-Sex Needs. You, it's not same-sex attraction. You're talking about the, the, the general needs of all men that we have uh, at varying levels, but we, we, we all have them as men. Um, and And so Therefore, there there is no segregation right. of of gay, straight. Uh, I'm a SSA struggler. I, I I'm bisexual. It, no, we start with men, period, and and then we have these needs. And what happens when we don't get them met? 
how do we go and get them met mm-hmm. in in dark ways or uh, you know the shadow side of ourselves or however you want to put that and that I, I love right from the get-go you start out by just naming us all men right from the title on can you talk just yeah. a little bit more about that yeah well you know what I'm thinking about that is the um, in our culture um, I don't know I think we feel safer when people are pigeonholed or categorized mm-hmm. yes and um, I think also there's a um, I think there's a oh, notion in our culture we don't know what being a man is I mean yeah. I'm very thankful for others for communities like yours at Samson Society for Richard Rohr and others that are talking about you know what is it to be a man because mm-hmm. I think largely a lot of men are insecure about their masculine identity and yes. so to see a man that's that's sexualizing their own gender is is threatening and so but I think the very men that threaten those men uh, you know and who you know or do mean things to them or you know you know call them faggot and whatever have their own issues of insecurity with their masculine identity mm-hmm. and both of them have the same wound in which they aren't mentored and I think um, both communities be it you know a man that's totally you know womanizing and abusing women and the like or a man who's sexualizing his own gender I would say both the core need is lack of mentorship in in our masculine culture nowadays and the older generation and men walking with and showing men and loving them and helping them grow up and showing them what it is uh, to be a man yeah and I don't know if that's answering your question specifically, no, uh, though, then. No, absolutely. And and just, too, what I found interesting uh, throughout the book is you, your story is the backdrop, but then you pulled in other men's stories. And I was just wondering, what was that process like for you? Uh, I think, I believe you started this in, what, 2007, maybe? Uh, what was that like, just gathering those stories uh, of these men and, and them just making themselves vulnerable to you and, and available to you? and what was that whole journey like in, in writing this book? Yeah, I can say in terms of the other people's stories, um, it was an honor. I mean, I run in circles where men are, have learned to survive by being very um, transparent and mm-hmm. grounded in their transparency. And so um, it, part of it was just a very simple list I had. I was asking the men, be it, um, talk to me about what's been helpful uh, on this journey for you in your sexualizing of your own gender like why have you chosen not to embrace like a gay identity or the like um, how what has not been helpful and specifically regarding the church mm-hmm. what has not been helpful mm-hmm. and specifically regarding the church what has been helpful and um, just and then going where the interview led me and I recorded I interviewed specifically about 10 men and then recorded them all and had all their interviews transcribed and then inserted them into the story or into you know wherever it was appropriate um, as I figured out the chapters of the book but and my own story I think part of what I really wrestled with and this really came from when I spoke in chapel is a friend had challenged me he goes Tim you need to die you need to die so something new can grow Mm -hmm. and this means let go of how you're how you want people to perceive you Mm -hmm. what other people think of you and he just said Tim you need to die it's Mm -hmm. time to die and I'm like, oh, it was the last thing in the world I want to hear. And standing up in front of that podium, in front of about a thousand faculty and staff, I just, I really audibly told myself, die, Tim, die. And then I just kind of launched in. And I know I am most moved by authors like um, Walter Wenger and Jr., Brendan Manning, Henry Nowen, mm-hmm. Philip Yancey, and others that tell their story and mm-hmm. aren't afraid to tell 
the mess of it. And those are the men I trust and respect, too, that are totally transparent. You know, like you, Nate, and what I know of your story and, mm-hmm. you know, read and listened to um, with Samson Society. And those are men I trust because you know where they're coming from. You know, and also... I know then how to protect their back, and they know how to get my back, type yeah. thing. Um, but all that to say, with the um, with that, I just thought with the book, I've got to just shoot straight. And I mean, there were times, honestly, I was crying or shaking while trying to put stuff in there, or my editors came back specifically saying, okay, I know this story in your life. Why are you not putting it here? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, shut up. I don't, <laughs> come on. Can yeah. I leave some, like, <laughs> can I leave you, this yeah. out? You know, so, can I just say, I knew this guy once who, right. yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. like. To create, um, create one so more much, interview, pieces yeah, of you. Yes, just make up someone else's name. Um, but I just thought, you know what, um, I, uh, my life is not my own. I've mm-hmm. surrendered it a long time ago. And if this could be helpful to someone, um, it's worth it. And and also the men that shared with me and um, uh, Thad. I hope I'm not uh, you know breaching anything and saying Thad is one of the people I interviewed. Oh, sure. well, yeah. well, it's in the book. My name is in the book. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Thad my lawyer famous. will be in touch with you later, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey Tim. Darn it. I'm, two um, two questions came to mind though back there, and w- one is how did the the faculty and students react to this? You. You've given us a glimpse into this moment where you're standing at the precipice about to jump. What happened after you jumped, one? And two, I'm curious if God called you to this death, this die, Tim, die moment. Uh, I, I haven't known God to call us to a death that he didn't offer a resurrection. So what's that looked like in Tim Timmerman's life? Amen, amen. You know, it's interesting. Um so I spoke, and I still remember, I, you know, friends were all sitting in the front row, like support team. One one friend of mine, she was knitting the whole time while I was speaking. I can still see her in my mind because she knits. So, yeah, I can see anyway. it at Wheaton all of a sudden, not yeah. in Oregon so much. That's yeah. interesting. There, there we go. But I sat down, and I literally covered my mouth when I sat down because it was just this, like, holy mackerel. Like, I can't get this back out. Like, mm, I yeah, just yeah. said all this stuff. And everybody stood. I mean, I'll, I'll choke up. I'll try to tell you. Everybody stood and mm. clapped. And my friends were like, turn around, turn around, turn around, stand up, Tim, turn around. And yeah. I was just like, wow. And what I can say is suddenly a flood of faculty, students, and staff yeah. started talking to me. Hey, I need to talk to you about my son. Or, yeah. hey, I need to tell you my story. My story, yeah. Um, hmm. And, uh, you know, suddenly I was a safe person for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, and I can say someone modeled that to me here, even before I spoke in chapel. A dear friend of mine spoke about her eating disorder and anorexia, and she's a gorgeous, you know, amazing professor here. And she just said, you know what, I'm not done yet. This isn't fixed entirely. God and I are still working through this. And she said that at the end of her talk. And I was like, oh, man, I was so impressed she did that. And I just thought, okay, I can do this now. But what I can say is it shifted things. And with the dying, you're right. I mean, with the dying, what came is... This amazing feeling, and it happened before, but in putting this out there, this does not define me. I mean, I do not yeah, define right. myself by, if I, I can sexualize women too, but yeah. I don't define myself by if I can sexualize a guy or a woman or whatever. I'm defined by Christ, period, and what he's called me to do. And that's been amazing in the sense that before I was so worried about other people's perceptions of me and fear of that mm-hmm. and even I spoke in chapel recently and um, 
uh, a student that works for me said to me, she goes, Tim, what student pulled me aside and saw what you were speaking on. She goes, is Tim Timmerman gay? And I said to the student who knows me, I said, what'd you say to her? Or what'd you say to him? And she goes, I just said, why don't you ask him? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Good. one of my people right there, you yeah. know, yeah. because it's that we want to pigeonhole people. We, we feel mm-hmm. safer if we can somehow put them somewhere. And, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I don't define myself by those terms, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I was really struck as you were talking about the destruction of friendship by the by, by the way we have uh, introduced homosexuality into the just the general lexicon. This is how we classify people now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just just finishing a fascinating biography of George Washington. So mm-hmm. struck by his relationship with Lafayette. Uh, Washington, who kept himself regally uh, and you know magisterially separate uh, from almost everybody. I mean, he was he was close, but not too close. Uh, and I mean, just but there was one exception. There was one guy who he really allowed in close, and it was a young man who, like George Washington, had grown up without a father. And uh, you know, Lafayette was pretty much a lost boy wanting to be a hero when he showed up in the and uh, 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 the colonies during the revolution and he really needed a friend and he needs uh, and specifically he needed an older friend and mm. and really at the same time Washington needed a friend he desperately needed a friend and he really needed a younger one mm. uh, and those two formed a, a phenomenal friendship that survives in their letters in which uh, they are almost embarrassingly affectionate in the mm-hmm. way they address mm-hmm. each other, in very tender terms. Uh, right now, you know, these days, in today's climate, that would have provoked, that would have been too dangerous a friendship to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lafayette, I don't think Washington could have been Washington without Lafayette, and I don't think Lafayette could have been Lafayette without Washington. Lafayette mm-hmm. did, went on to do things... Uh, in the realm of the abolition of slavery, he did. Uh, he uh, he, w- he played a huge role in social change in Central America and in France. Uh, following really the, mo- he went farther than Washington could go. In that, uh, anyway, uh, we were slipping into Larkin territory right there, weren't we? Yeah, <laughs> some history buff. Yeah, I mean, I love that stuff, <laughs> but, but, but yeah. it's so germane to this conversation. Can we please just be friends? I'm glad we've crossed that bridge in the Samson Society. Mm-hmm. Early on, we didn't. Uh, in the very earliest days, it wasn't that we, we hadn't crossed the bridge. It's just that, okay, we're, uh, we made gay jokes in the very beginning. Sometimes mm-hmm. so, you know, we're hanging around... Uh, you know, just shooting, shooting the bull before the before the meeting started, and then, yeah, and then at some point, a bunker steps up and says, "You know what? We can't do this because mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's just making the room unsafe. Mm-hmm. So let's mm-hmm. we're not going to make gay jokes anymore. Mm-hmm. And then let's let's begin to talk honestly about our sexual brokenness wherever it is, mm-hmm. uh, and be brothers together. And so." And I, I, I want to kind of draw a, a parallel yeah. that that I think, uh, in part, Tim, when you said, my identity's not there, my identity's in Christ, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, 
okay, yeah, no, duh. That should be, like, everyone should be able to say that. But then you've got this need of other people, the person saying, is Tim Timmerman gay? Like, there's some kind of right to ask that. It's at which the first question should be, oh, uh, well, tell me what you're you're struggling with. Tell me what your sins are. Let's be, is that how we're starting right. this conversation? Okay. Neat. Right. Sure, I have same sex attraction. What what are you into? Mm-hmm. Like but for some reason that was an okay question to just like launch into. Mm. But then with this whole like pigeonholing, um I I brought a man who is not a Christian to come talk to a group of college students about homelessness and he was head of the homeless coalition uh, where I live. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he said was, well, the, our problem here is the word homelessness. Mm-hmm. And the kids are all like, what? And he said, well, when we use a word, homelessness, then we look for a solution. What is the solution to homelessness? Mm-hmm. Well, why is there homelessness? Sometimes it's because of a financial situation someone's come into, sometimes mental illness, sometimes drug abuse. And we listed like seven. And of those seven reasons someone would be homeless, the solution was totally different. Mm-hmm. So by having one word for one condition, mm-hmm. it made it impossible to help everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I think of the pigeonholing homosexual as a homosexual. Well, wait, who's the man? What's going mm-hmm. on? But then mm-hmm. I also think of the porn addict, and mm-hmm. I think of the alcoholic, and right. I, how we actually pigeonhole all of these issues in different ways, and it just makes it easier to remove the man for everybody else, we can say, okay, he's in he's in that spot. So, talk to me a little about how do we how do we climb out as men into each other's real lives and ask the real questions and walk in the real friendships that you studied. Mm-hmm. I think actually, I'm going to tie a little bit of what both you guys said together in that I think a lot of it is longing. We all long for a place. We all long to belong. And I believe in the absurd notion that. You can have high same-sex needs, and you don't need to sexualize them in order to get those needs met. Right. Our culture goes down the venue, avenue of, no, you need to have sex to get those needs met. And I'm like, nah, I don't know. You could go down that road, and I have plenty of friends that have, and that hasn't been that helpful for them in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and another just kind of sidebar here, I just recently was part of a conversation with Evangelicals for Social Action with a group of us that got together and talked about, you know, this issue and the like. And there I met others who have profess, who are Christians, but also who self-identify as gay. And what I found really interesting is I asked them, I said, talk to me, how is it helpful? Because I said, I think you guys know my story enough that, you know, I would never self-identify or use that term. Why? You know, why do you take this term? And even two individuals that are celibate or said, you know, celibacy is the answer, still kind of use that term. And they both said the same reason, which was basically, I have no place in the church. Mm. I have no place I belong. Mm-hmm. I have no... And taking on this identity or saying this term for myself, I suddenly have a place in the world and belong. <sighs> and for me, it just was a profound statement of, we are doing a terrible job in the community of Christ, providing a place where people who have high same-sex needs met for one another, needs for one another met, and are making it clear that, you know, the church is for, you know, married to and 2.5 kids or whatever, even though over 50% of the culture is single in, you know, of the age of 18 and over. Um, and so it makes me think back to, uh, Nate, even what you were saying historically about 
um, you know, these the letters, I, I find them almost funny. I mean, you read their letters and it's like, and the title of the chapter, Beloved Friend, is mm-hmm. taken from their letters because yeah. it would be, you know, uh, oh, beloved friend, my dear one, how I love to hold you. And I mean, and this is, you know, some scientist writing to another scientist talking about their experiment. I yeah, mean, yeah, and yeah. What's, what's funny is even in the 20th century, their children who are trying to publish letters of, you know, important people, be it uh, like Louis Pasteur, mm-hmm. they would edit their letters because they were like, oh my gosh, everybody's going to think my dad's gay, you know, in the 20th century, so I've got to get rid of these affectionate terms he's using for his colleagues and the like, where that was just part of part and parcel of the culture, which largely, uh, one thing that comes to mind for me too in the his, like categorizing and putting people in different kind of cubbies is historically, you know, there wasn't an insurance policy on your house or there wasn't, um, we weren't so uh, wealthy. And so I would have to have a committed relationship with Thaddeus that if anything happened to me, I would know he would take care of my wife and kids. Yeah. Or I would need help with my barn and I would need to make sure, you know, uh, Aaron, you were available and we were in good stead with one another so you can come and help me because we desperately needed one another for survival and so it's why they you know they would do things like covenant brotherhoods and wedded friendships you know in the renaissance Mm -hmm. and on where Mm -hmm. men would vow you know that you are my beloved brother for the rest of my life in front of everybody at church Mm -hmm. i mean because it was this covenant that um held families and communities together even more Mm -hmm. um and kept everybody alive, but you know, in our wealth and stuff, we don't, we don't. I don't need you, you know, as long as I have money to go to the grocery store, and as long as I have money, I'm fine. Where I think historically, men relied on one another, women relied on one another a lot more, and you didn't have just one exclusive relationship that was mm-hmm. supposedly su- supposedly supposed to meet all your needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one thing I've often said. Um in my own study of this is that we make the mistake today of looking at history through a modern day lens and you cannot do that you have to look at the the place and time in history through that particular lens of that time you you can't otherwise uh, that's why we have people rewriting history today saying oh Lincoln was gay no he wasn't Mm -hmm. we didn't have central heating and air in homes we didn't have five bedrooms we had maybe two bedrooms and travelers strangers often shared a bed to stay warm and so Lincoln's best friend it was very commonplace to share a bed with your best friend if you're traveling or uh, or what have you and so we have to look at Lincoln through that lens of history, not through sure. 2012. Yeah, right. Sure. Right. And even with Lincoln and Joshua Speed, his mm-hmm. best friend, he didn't even know Joshua Speed. He basically was looking for a place to stay, and Speed said, I have a place, you can stay with me. Mm-hmm. And he moved in, and they had to share a bed. I mean, they didn't even know each other. And actually, that was true for traveling. Yes. Yeah. You, would, you would share a bed with strangers all the time. And even, um, is it Samuel May, one of the famous abolitionists said, basically with this guy that had, wasn't, was, you know, a slave dealer, but then became an abolitionist with him, he said, I'll even sleep with him in the same bed to prove to you I'm not worried he's going to try to take my life, mm-hmm. type thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, with that, um, well, sort of kind of moving on from the history part of this, but just 
again, going back to men, same gender needs, some of us having higher needs, some of us not so, so high in needs in certain areas, but having all the same generally as men. Um, what has been your experience? I know you, you talk about in the book, you've got your, what you co- uh, call, quote unquote, my guys, and I, I believe there's three guys you have, um, that you know, you've kind of grown your community uh, out there in Oregon. And so what has that experience been like for you and these guys? And, and what can you share with just men today about that? And I'm talking about men coming from any struggle, any background, any mm-hmm. age group. Uh, again, underscoring that we all have needs as men um, of each other. Um, so what's that experience been like for you? Maybe some of the the fears, some of the um, benefits, uh, what when you stepped into those fears, uh, what the benefit was and the blessing was of that. Sure. Um, one thing that comes to mind, not to quote history again, but I, what often comes to mind for me is medieval mindset of the monks and all where the friends that were worth the most were the ones that you've had the longest. So in talking to students or other people I've, you know, advised, um, I tell them, always think the long haul. Your goal is the long haul for this friendship. So what is going to be the most building, the most supportive, the most nurturing to the friendship for the longevity of the friendship? Because that's your goal mm-hmm. with it. Um, what I can say is um, uh, the friendships like that I have here in Oregon were a real slow ramp down. Mm-hmm. It's the best way I can put it, down in terms of depth in that um, they were gradual. And part of it for me, uh, I want to say, was being patient in that this wasn't an overnight, this is my best friend in the world, you know. Um, It's more gradual, and there is a sense of shared mission. Like, I think intimacy, you know, relates on levels of there's intellectual, physical, spiritual, emotional. I mean, there's got to be depth in kind of all of those areas. Right. Um, now, and I, they've got to be equaled. Are, are these guys guys that have same-sex needs or not? This community. <laughs> you mean same-sex attraction? Same-sex attraction. Well, right. We all right. have same-sex needs. Okay. <laughs> See, I'm try- I was trying to use the right one for the right <laughs> So, So the you're answer is great. They, you're doing great. they all have... <laughs> The answer is yes. All of them have same-sex needs. So, yeah. question number two: <laughs> They are all alive. Do they have same-sex <laughs> yeah. attraction or not? Yes. Um, no. Actually, uh, all my my dearest friends here in Oregon um, don't struggle with sexualizing their own gender. Okay. Um, are, are they? But ma- what I found with them is they have deep same-sex needs in that they yeah. really need one another. Like, for example, one buddy of mine, I was like, can you just occasionally, like, I get most depressed, like, late at night. So could you just come over, like, after your kids are down and just hang out with me, sit with me on the couch with your arm around me, whatever, and can we just talk, right? And just can you just be there with me? And um, uh, so he started doing this, and what humored me is he would talk and talk and talk. Like, <laughs> it, he... It's totally what he needed, and he was. And afterwards, he'd be like, "This is great! Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow! You know, so when yeah. are we getting together next?" And I was very humored by that. In the yeah. sense that it started out with my need, like, "Can you just? Right. I hate support late at night." To he was totally, you know, digging it, and it, you know, was what he needed in terms of someone just to kind of vent the day with, you know, besides his wife and children and the like, and. um what I found is they've had to come to terms with things. I'm thinking one dear friend of mine ended up coming to me later and saying, Tim, I needed to totally confess. I was totally worried that people would think I'm gay. 
if I was your friend or if mm-hmm. I go and staff one of these mm-hmm. crazy weekends you staff. And I just need to admit, I, I was afraid people would think I'm gay because or that I struggle with this. And I and I'm totally insecure about my masculinity, and I didn't want people to think I was gay. So I just I have to apologize to you. Hmm. I was like, man, thanks. Wow. Okay. So, and so, uh, let me. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, a couple. No, go on. Couple other practical questions, just because I I'm thinking of a handful of guys I know that get to a certain age, they're single. They're dealing with same-sex attraction. The people around them that have been their core friends are getting married, and they feel like they don't know how to make that transition that you're talking about, that once Mm -hmm. their friends get married, Mm. well, who exactly is going to be my core community Mm -hmm. that Thaddeus is talking about that you have? So there's that piece. The other part that they have a deep desire for a committed, uh, I think you even used, I don't know if you used the term covenantal relationship that was sure. people had in the past because there was a context, but there is no context now for them sure. to have that with anybody else uh, in the same kind of way because the dependence isn't there in a practical way. So right. so right. Give, give me a little more as a as a man who has core friends who are in these different stages of life and I'm thinking of these guys who might be listening to this saying, wait a minute, okay, how did how did you get to that place that you just described? Because you're describing, you know, Edemic, utopian kind of stuff that is just going to annoy them. Especially, the, if I may add to that, especially, Tim, the first question, when, when guys get married, you touch on this in the book, and, and they leave. And, and, and you've yeah. got these guys that are single that struggle with SSA, and no more, there's no more single ministry in the church because everybody got married and I'm left alone, right. and so I disappear. Right. So right. just to emphasize that, because you do bring that out in the book. Yeah. Um, oh, golly, several places to go with this. One is um, men that are broken and aware of their brokenness are just a godsend. Mm. Because men that are broken, and yeah, maybe five years in the marriage, ten years in the marriage, but men that realize, okay, my marriage can't be everything. And my wife, mm-hmm. I'm thinking one friend particularly told me that his wife was like, please leave me alone. Please go have other <laughs> friends. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, but, That's um, common. Yeah. But, uh, but that idea of... It um, uh, it takes men that maybe it's a crisis in the family, a night in jail, something that they realize I really need my men to survive. Mm. So there's a level of maturity that I think has to happen, and unfortunately, a lot in their 20s sometimes aren't there mm-hmm. in terms of to be able to say, "Look, I'm married and I love my wife and my kids, and I'm going to stay close friends with you." I think, unfortunately, that isn't there, and. Even, you know, one of you mentioned, like, my, I'm talking about some utopia here. I had to laugh because I don't feel like it's a utopia. Because the term I would use sometimes is be needy, be greedy. In mm-hmm. that sometimes it's a matter of being a man is being willing to ask for what I need. And, you know, weekends that I've staffed that have men mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, are a whole group of men that struggle with sexualizing their own gender, I'll say things like, okay, what's easiest? It's late at night. Do you look at porn because you really want to connect with someone, or do you call up your one of your friends and say, "Hey, will you come over and hold me for a little bit?" And they mm-hmm. all look at me aghast, like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you do that." <laughs> and I go, "I do that. I've done that, and I still need to do that." But I said, "Okay, but look at it. How's work? How's looking at the porn working for you? Mm-hmm. How's how's the hookups working for you? Is that meeting your need? Is that sustaining your life and you know building up your heart and who you are as a man?" Uh, you know, they're like, no, okay, so maybe it's time to try something different. And mm. so it's it's a matter of um, the uh, 
a plant needs watering to survive, and I know what I need to survive. And it's sometimes a matter of constantly kind of putting myself out there, not to an annoying, kind of overwhelming degree to someone, but just saying, look, you know, this is what I need. Can you get together? And I know for me what's helpful is setting up regular times. Like I have two right. buddies every I have lunch with every week. So I know I'm going to, you know, have time with, with them. And, um, or, you know, a set, you know, dinner. I'm going over to your house for dinner or whatever. Um, and, you know, I kind of want to tell one absurd story I heard recently from a friend of mine in our men's group up here called Deep Water. Um, in that this is a man that does not struggle with same, has not struggled with sexualizing his gender, but he told me this story that blew me out of the water, guys, because I was just like, wow, okay, such things exist. Because he was talking about something that could be straight out of the 19th century, and that he basically had a friend who was a mentor to him, and he, um, uh, you know, Christian mentor, he was 19, the friend was like 31, the friend was married with kids. He basically moved in with the friend and his wife and their kids to help him out. The wife left, and suddenly he's 19 with this 32-year-old and three kids, hmm. and going, what am I supposed to do? And the guy was devastated that lost his wife and just like, I can't do this alone. So my buddy was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay here and help him with the kids. Cause, and he, what he said to me is, is he's like, I couldn't leave him with those kids. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, what 19-year-old makes this decision? But mm-hmm. he would live with this guy and help him raise those kids for 20 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he did not struggle with his sexual identity, right? And he said even people thought they were gay, and he's like, I didn't care, you mm-hmm. know? Well, then his buddy would actually introduce him to the man, the woman that he would marry at mm-hmm. age 39. So he married this woman. A year later, his buddy moved in with them. Very understanding wife was like, I get it. This is like your brother, and he's been around forever. That man would live with him until he died two years ago in his 70s mm-hmm. for wow. 20 years, 20 more years. And it, um, we, I think you guys may have watched the movie Five Friends. We were mm-hmm. watching the movie Five Friends as a community, and then this, he told us this story, and it blew me away. I just thought, wow, okay. Because here's a covenant that someone made with someone that's not based on sex. It's not based on blood. This isn't a relative. Mm-hmm. But someone just said, you know what, you need help. And talking to him, he's like, I'm a relational person, and this person needed help, and they were, you know, my mentor. Mm-hmm. And so I could help them. So... So such things exist, and um, honestly, that gave me a lot of hope. Like, wow, okay, maybe I'm not too crazy that um, that people are out there that will lay down their life for one another. You know, um, greater love have no man that he laid his life down for his brother mm-hmm, yeah. type thing, um, or for his friend, excuse me. So, And a friend isn't someone you're having sex with or someone you're related to. Not that your wife, children, yeah. mother, father can't be that, but anyway... Yeah. I think part of it is the hard work, the day-to-day of choosing today to befriend someone and walk with them. And yeah. it's going to be messy. It's yeah. going to be messy. Yeah. Well, you make a beautiful call to friendship. The title of the book, again, is A Bigger World Yet. Faith, Brotherhood, and Same-Sex Needs by Tim Timmerman. Yeah. And uh, available on Amazon? Dot com. Yes, it is. Uh, yes, it is. Okay. Um, and uh, if our... Any of our listeners want to contact you directly? What's the easiest way for them to do that? Sure. The easiest way is actually I have a blog, which talks. I'm an artist, so it talks about my art, but also the book as well, which is the blog is just a, a bigger world yet at WordPress.com. You can even just put in my name, Tim Timmerman blog, and you'll find it. And on there, there's a contact for email and the like, and uh, they're more than welcome to shoot me an email and all that. And And keep what I would invite out there, please keep the book in your prayers in that, it is actually self-published, but I'm almost out of 
what I first published. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. now I'm like, hmm, what is the next step with the book? So yeah. uh, the book is in God's hands, is what I would say. Well, and, uh, Tim, thank you for dying. Mm. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> it's been good. To, it's been a good. It's a. I think of the Native American. It's a good day to die. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, and uh, to to you all as well, because from what I know of your community, um, you're a group of. Uh, uh, I want to say born again men. Isn't that yeah, doesn't that true. sound very 1970s ish? But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope. I really hope someday soon you'll be able to come out here. There's going to be an awful lot of men who are going to want to meet you and spend time with you. I look forward to, to, to having you personally here in the studio. So uh, just I love it, that. I'd enjoy that. Put, put, put it on the wish list. You've got to come to okay, Franklin, Tennessee. Deal. All right. Lord bless you. We'll be talking to you then. Bye, Tim. All right. Thank you. you. Bye. To renew your trouble, my... Wait,